So hey there guys. So this is my first uh, podcast uh, with Ryan. So Ryan is my first guest in this uh, talking with devs. And uh, yes, so Ryan, can you just uh, talk about yourself? Like what do you do? And uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my name is Ryan Michael K. Um, I am a self-taught uh, Android developer, uh, currently working as an Android developer uh, remotely. Yeah. Um, I started with Android back in 2014, just sort of teaching myself. Uh, in terms of like this term self-taught, I uh, have one single Java programming class in 2013. And then that is the entire extent of my education as a uh, programmer. So yeah, I basically just originally wanted to be a product owner and spent a ton of time just building my own projects and trying to market them. I found out that that's really difficult because being a marketer and a, sort of like a product owner and the developer is three full-time jobs. So, yeah. uh, so I still do a little bit of that, but currently I'm working full-time as a developer, uh, Android developer specifically. Similar to Breen's current work, I, I'm doing Kotlin, Android, and XML, hoping we might eventually switch to Compose, but not too likely. And uh, the other thing that I do is uh, in 2016, I was learning how to build a recycler view, which probably most people listening to this will be familiar with. And back then, the documentation wasn't great. Um, I have to commend the Android team for improving the documentation because people don't even know what it was like back then. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it took me two weeks to figure out how to build a recycler view. And at the end of that whole process, I thought this, I could have done this in a day if someone just explained it clearly. So I made a tutorial and that was my first ever Android tutorial in 2016. And I kind of just kept sharing what I've learned. And my goal has been to sort of be the person that I never had, cause I never really had a direct mentor. Um, so I just pretty much every Sunday I can do a live stream Q and A where I answer any question that I think I might have an answer to. So that's basically what I do. Oh, I think that's nice. And uh, come to think of it. So you started a YouTube channel because you wanted to share what you are learning or was it because, is it, was it form of just wanting to grow on YouTube or just to share what you, you are learning and stuff? Probably about 60, 40, six, like when I've started it in the very beginning, it really was just to, to help people. Um, I was just frustrated that, uh, especially back then, there was a couple channels around doing Android. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> and I didn't find them to be very good quality educational uh, content. Nothing like you get with uh, the group of people we have right now. Um, so uh, I was just very frustrated. I got ridiculously good feedback on the videos. I think a lot of that is just because of like the niche we're in. We don't get like random people searching stupid videos. So the feedback was really good. And eventually I did realize I could use this as a marketing platform. So that is true. Uh, over time, it has been uh, a marketing platform. But the truth is I've never been super interested in that side of thing. So my channel has grown probably a lot slower than most other people for that reason that I, I don't really make videos because I want them to be popular. I, I pretty much try to either just share what I'm learning or teach people what I think they might want to learn. 
Okay. And I suck at SEO. <laughs> but I think like uh, since I started watching you, like I guess the first video I saw about you was in 2019. The video about how to start learning, like how to be an Android developer as a junior developer, what things should you do? So that's the first video I watched about you. And I think that's that, like, that was the video that like propelled my career to something like uh, I can start work on projects and like have experience rather than just having like tutorials doing and stuff. So yeah, I think your channel like really helped me a lot uh, on my career. So yeah, just wanted to throw that to you. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the greatest things I can hear as a content creator. So thank you. Yeah. Glad to hear that. So uh, like one thing I wondered, uh, like how come you, you, you did programming? Like, did you just see an ad on the TV? Did you just stumble on it? Like why? Yeah. There's a very, very long version of that story because it was not a linear path at all, but I'll try to really condense it. I did a little bit of programming in high school and what, so the, the reason why I started in the very beginning is I basically just wanted to know if I was smart enough to do programming. Um, my idea of programming at the time, as I've joked before, was kind of like the matrix where there's like the green characters like streaming down the screens. And I was using computers from a pretty young age. And I just wanted to know how do you get a window to pop up on the screen? Um, the funny thing is that I actually really sucked at programming when I started because I, I have kind of a learning disability. It took me a while to learn how to read and I had to kind of learn how to read like English in a special way. And that same difficulty uh, carried along into programming. So I had a lot of trouble in high school. Um, I basically moved away from my hometown right after high school, like two months after and got a job in sales. And uh, although some people might get the impression I'm super extroverted and all that kind of stuff, I'm actually extremely introverted. And the idea of talking to random people all day, which was my job, uh, I really didn't like doing that. And I knew I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. A coworker of mine, her husband was a programmer for the Canadian government, and he didn't have any technical qualifications. I think he... <laughs> I think he passed high school, but um, he didn't have a degree or anything. So that was my first exposure that you could become a programmer without a degree. I knew I had a little bit of experience. I chatted with him. He tried to get me in with the place they were working at, and unfortunately, they didn't want me. And then after like a year of depression, here we are in 2014, and I decided to myself, I wanted to do some kind of entrepreneurship type thing because I just didn't want to do nine to five. Um, and I basically at that point decided to build Android apps. So, and then it's been a windy road since there of having to work full time while learning Android and all kinds of stuff like that. So hopefully yeah. that kind of covers it. <laughs> that's a very short I think, version. I think that's an interesting journey. Yeah. So like, uh, you have like, let's say you started learning Android on 2016, right? 2014. 2014. Uh, compared to now, like, what do you think about Android development? Like, what do you like about it? And what do you dislike about it in quotes? Yeah. That's a very interesting question. Um, I think what's most interesting is that 
there's sort of a double-edged sword we have, which is that the Android team, um, I believe they've said this themselves, they're taking a more active, I should say the developer relations team, they're taking a much more active role in not only advising people how to build applications, but also providing libraries, which you can use to sort of plug into your code bases and, and get things going quickly. And I think that is certainly on the whole a very good thing. But I do see that there's a double-edged sword there, which is that there is a whole bunch of libraries, um, like all the Jetpack libraries. And what I find generally speaking is that these libraries tend to be really good in many situations and then really in certain situations where they either, either haven't covered an edge case or, or something like that, really difficult to work around. So I would say, I think the most difficult thing is early on in my career, I didn't have the technical knowledge to do things sort of using fewer libraries. At the time, actually, I thought what, what meant, or sorry, to be a good developer meant you were always learning the latest libraries and using them. I realize nowadays as I don't want to call myself a senior developer, but a more senior developer that a lot of times you don't actually want to be using those libraries if you can write the solution yourself or you've got a simpler way of doing it. Um, so I don't want to give mixed messages here and say you shouldn't be using libraries. Not at all what I'm saying, but I think that's the biggest thing that has changed is that uh, Android development feels a lot more on rails and that comes, it's sort of a mixed bag. Good and bad. Uh, you pretty much don't advocate, like, I don't know, like, you don't advocate to using libraries at certain points, but to come up, like, with a custom solution for something. So let's say, for example, uh, rather than using Retrofit, you can build your own, like, HTTP connection uh, class or something. Uh, like, why is it, why, why is it that, uh, why do you, um, advocate for that? Is there like a benefit to it or something? Yeah. I think it depends entirely on what your goals are in a developer. So I think it very much makes sense like in a company to use lots of libraries because you're going to have people of varying skill levels that are all able to sort of be on the same page. Um, in terms of personal growth as an individual, the, the most growing I've done in Android has been to build a few applications using almost zero third-party libraries. Because what it allowed me to do is, for starters, learn when I can write something myself that is more compact and easier to work with than, say, a library like Retrofit. And then the other thing that it's helped me to do is to understand uh, two things. I know how to go into the source code of a library and evaluate whether it's good or, or something I should be using um, or something I can maybe, if it's open source, pull some code out, code out of that and use it only if it's open source license. Um, so yeah, really just to know when to use a library and when not to. And then in terms of like interviews and things like that, I've had some difficult interviews where they want you to really know the core Android SDK well and a lot of that stuff can get hidden from you uh, when you're using a lot of libraries so again i'm not uh, trying to make a blanket statement that you shouldn't use libraries 
what I suggest for maybe like an individual developer, try building a medium sized project with almost zero third party libraries. Mm -hmm. There's some things like that I wouldn't do myself ever. I wouldn't do image processing. I'm really happy to use Glide or we used to use Picasso, whatever. But things like dependency injection is a big one. Network communication or adapters, if you want to learn how to do that, super important. And getting more familiar with things like Android services, very useful skills to have. Yeah, I think I quite, I quite agree with that. Like for you to understand uh, something like in the deepest format, you must like go into the roots and see how something was made like yeah to make sense yeah so one interesting thing is um you started learning computer science and was it operating systems and i was yes. quite interested like how how was it learning it and um wh why did you start learning it so yeah i'm quite interested in that yeah sure well the um to answer the why first um I think uh, particularly for someone who doesn't have like a academic background. And then secondly, as someone who spent like the first six years or four years of their career coding on the JVM, um, just to explain briefly, of course, uh, the JVM is several layers of abstraction above uh, machine code. And so the more layers of abstraction you get, the more removed from how computers actually work that you will be. So not only not having that background understanding and then also working with like JVM on Android, I just really didn't know how computers worked and that frustrated me. And I also felt like even though there were people who I could code circles around in terms of building applications, um, they had this thing over me, which was this sort of knowledge of uh, lower level details. So that's sort of what um, sort of sparked me. I'm just very naturally curious and things that I don't understand, for some reason, my brain models it as a challenge to myself. It's uh, annoying, but also really useful, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what got me into programming in the yeah. start. And, and do you think like um, people who did, like who have done CS degrees, do they like have an advantage to someone who is like self-taught? So I'm self-taught and I, have a, I don't have like a CS degree. And I think most of the people don't have CS degrees. Maybe, I'm not sure. Like, do they, do you think there's an advantage in learning the fundamentals of computer science? It totally depends. Yeah. It depends on the uh, institution you go to. I have met, uh, Sorry, excuse me. I uh, met this one individual who I used to work with in a kitchen, hilariously, who had finished his degree and was working on his master's, I believe, in software engineering. And a very nice person, but uh, this person didn't know what GitHub was and had never built a deployable application outside of maybe like school projects. Uh, and then even if you're in a program which does teach you those CS fundamentals, if you're not paying attention, you, you kind of forget everything you learn, it might not be that useful. So to be honest, in my opinion, the main use use of like post-secondary is to get you a job. Um, I think that would be the main thing. As far as the education you get, I think it entirely depends. I think the advantage I had as a self-taught developer is that I had to jump into just building apps right away. 
And so I spent hundreds of hours, eventually thousands of hours writing code, studying things academically and writing, you know, memorizing things and writing stuff down in plain language about code. If you have a good memory, maybe that'll help you. If you can take that knowledge and apply it in your code bases, maybe that'll be, that'll help you. I've never been good at learning that way. I'm really good at learning in code. So uh, I think that would be the big advantage really for a self-taught developer is just the skill of writing code itself. Yeah, I think that's a good point, yeah. And uh, another question is uh, the point. So recently at my workplace, um, I faced, like I came upon a realization that the architecture I choose wasn't necessary. Like it just added like a layer of complexity when adding new features. So like, what's your thought on this architecture stuff? Should we even like consider it or should we like, uh, should we like go, should each person go to each, each way or uh, like, what, what do you think of it? And uh, when should one use it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is probably the thing I, I believe I talk about most out of uh, anything. And I have a lot to say about it, but I'm going to try to condense it. Um, there's a couple of things. So if you've been on Twitter lately, you've probably noticed that there is a giant push against clean architecture and a lot of criticism. Um, of it. And I do think that criticism is very valid because what you just described at your situation, I went through that too in like 2017, 2018. Um, how I, the, the broadest sort of strokes I can give for someone who sort of wants to learn these things is um, the core principles are very important. And for me, the core principles, what I try to teach is separation of concerns, also known as modularity. And really what this means is we can generally divide our code up into three things in GUI programming anyways, stuff that has to do with user interface, logic, and then data storage and access. And that's kind of where all the architectures come from, MVP, MVVM, MVC. We can make further divisions for logic, for, for data or model and for view. We can really slice that down as much as we want. I'm not gonna do that today, but um, keep in mind those big three separations. Try to pull those things apart, but here's where we get into the weeds. Um, what most developers find is they, first they learn about some kind of GUI architecture like model view, view model or maybe even clean architecture, they start doing that in like a note-taking app. And then maybe they take on a more complicated app and then they start applying these principles again. And then they'll run into a situation where they realize that they have this feature where they need to like make a call to shared preferences or something like that. And that call to shared preferences is behind like seven layers of abstraction and, and just, extra code. And then the developer asked themselves, why am I actually doing this? Is this actually creating more problems than it solves? And this is what I teach people all the time now is this simple phrase or saying, follow these principles only to the extent that they solve more problems than they create. Unfortunately, as a developer to learn when they're creating more problems than they solve, 
you probably need to apply them too much. That's That was my experience. I applied them in a giant project and realized that it was such a big waste of time. Um, and then I came back down and like, okay, I know how to do that when I need to, when the project requirements require it. But if I'm building like a single screen little application or a feature that's tightly coupled to Google Maps or whatever, I'm not going to fight the platform and fight the project requirements to follow an architecture. The only other thing I want to mention, separation of concerns is kind of the biggest one. The other one that is important to learn about, which can be abused, is what I call the theory of abstractions. Again, not going to go into too much detail. Abstractions are less detailed representations of other things. In practical statements, generally speaking, we're thinking of an interface. An interface has less de detail, which is to say it doesn't have function bodies, but it has function signatures, less detail, and then something can sort of implement it. Abstractions are a way to promote loose coupling. Um, an analogy I like to use is, uh, let's say I'm putting something together with wood. I could use a nail and hammer the nail in, but if I want to take that piece of wood off or apart, it's difficult. I need to like get a hammer and start digging into it and rip it out. If I use a screw, I screw it in. If I want to pull that thing apart, I just get the screw gun, turn it to reverse, pull the screw out, and it's apart with much less damage. It's kind of the most practical analogy I can give. Use abstractions in situations where you expect things to change frequently, or also if you want something to be easy to test and you want to be able to put like a, a test double of something behind that abstraction, those would be two cases. So what I suggest is learn how to use interfaces. Maybe in the beginning you might be using them too much, but they're another thing which gets abused a lot and, and unnecessarily. So basically abstractions and separation of concerns. Learn what those things are, the core principles. Don't worry about trying to find the perfect model view, whatever architecture doesn't exist, never will, never did. Yeah, That's I think uh, that makes sense. Like trying to find the perfect solution, you will never find it. So yeah, it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, like just a quick analogy for that. It literally, software architecture and building architecture has a lot of similarities. And so what I tell people is, imagine you're designing an architecture for a two bedroom apartment. You could probably come up with a pretty damn good architecture for that. Would it make sense to use that same best architecture to build a hospital? No, different project requirements completely. So that's where the best architecture comes from is examining project requirements. Yeah, I totally agree with that, yeah. So um, another thing is that um, recently you've been, I think you've been documenting your interview process. And uh, I don't know, like it's, was it like six months ago you started learning data structures and algorithms? And um, I just wanted to know like, what process did you take? And uh, like, was it worth it? Like, it's a long process, like knowing you're just doing questions, but you don't know why you're doing these questions. So <laughs> even you're, you're not sure like if you'll get the job. So like, how did you cope with that emotions, like those emotions? 
and also how did you like prepare for those questions and how long did it take yeah yeah um so to just give sort of the timeline um i was reached out to by i don't really mind mentioning it meta at uh the end of november 2021 um i won't go through the whole process the process ended in april like april 2nd so i don't know i think that's like five months something like that so um i had a basic understanding of what i call the three core things you need to know as a software engineer or if you're just interviewing at meta or google or whatever data structures algorithms this really annoying thing that seems needlessly complicated called big o complexity it's just stupid jargon for how efficient is your code when it comes to how long it takes to execute and how much memory space it takes up so that's all that big o complexity is i had a basic understanding of those things but i am naturally not good at solving algorithms quickly uh, again i think this has to do with my learning disability but i like to say i'm really good at math i'm terrible at ar arithmetic so i make lots of small errors um what i the whole process to try to summarize it pretty quickly here is I knew I had to spend a lot of time solving the stupid legal type problems. Um, I had to learn a repeatable process for solving new algorithms. Uh, and then I had to implement the data structures and algorithms um, myself. Obviously, part of implementing the data or the algorithms comes from uh, actually solving the problems. But what I'm talking about is creating a project in Android Studio or IntelliJ or whatever you're doing and uh, going through all the core data structures, not all of them, important core data structures and algorithms and building them yourself in that context. So it's hard to quantify exactly, but over that three month period, uh, so there was about three months where I was doing that like a full-time job. Uh, I know I said five months was the whole process. I wasn't able to actually study the whole time. So about three months total of studying and, um, about 33% was coding the data structures and some of the core algorithms in like a project, uh, about 33% was solving leak code problems. And I did that towards the end. After I, I had written the core data structures, like hash map, linked list, queues, stacks, heap, that kind of thing. Um, then I focused really on getting a process down. Uh, and I can summarize that process in a minute if you would like. And then um, then just really doing a ton of problems. Yeah. So um, I didn't end up getting the job. I made it to the virtual on-site interview, which is a whole day of interviews. Um, I knew there would be some uh, DSA questions that I just, my brain isn't really good at processing. I pretty much got exactly those questions. So I wasn't able to really do a great job on them. And uh, I didn't end up getting the job uh, at that company, but I'm okay with that. And I think the last thing you had mentioned is, was it worth it? Yes and no. Um, I did definitely level up quite a bit as a programmer because new problems I come across in my day-to-day -day work 
very rarely will they actually be related to writing a breadth first search or using Dijkstra's algorithm. But there are certain things, particularly using hash maps, amusingly, where it's I, I'm able to write algorithms pretty effectively, even in difficult situations. So. Okay, yeah, I think <laughs> that was an experience for you, like preparing for an interview in like five months straight. So I think that's a, like it's, it's a plus for your side, although you didn't get the job, but I'm sure like maybe in the coming future, the recruiters will approach you with maybe another uh, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, we'll see if I even want to work with <laughs> there anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, so the other question is um, like, what's your routine like to set up you for, for the day, like setting you up for the day? Like what, what is it like? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's important to point out that had you asked me before I started living with uh, my girlfriend, I would give you a pretty different answer. At the moment, I generally wake up at six o'clock and uh, during weekdays, I'll typically be like preparing my girlfriend's lunch or something like that and feeding the cats and doing that type of thing. Uh, and then what we typically do at work is uh, my workplace is two hours ahead of me. I do a remote job. So I start work at seven. They kind of do nine to five. And we'll typically do a daily startup, sort of like we'll type it out and try to post that by seven o'clock. Excuse me. And then we have a daily standup, which I'm always sitting for. So it kind of confuses me, but we do a daily standup sort of remotely at 720. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of like my coding process, um, I typically work in like two to three hour blocks and then I'll take a break as long as I need to. And what I listen for is I'm very into auto-regulating my workday. So I take a break when my brain gives me the signal that I need to take a short break. And assuming I'm not physically exhausted, uh, usually 10 minutes, like a maybe a walk up and down my apartment or take a power nap. Generally, I find that's enough to get going again. I typically don't eat a lot in the morning. That also really helps me. And then these days after three o'clock, assuming I'm not having to work extra, which doesn't happen often, thankfully, uh, I will typically do my workout and meditation and stuff like that. In years prior, uh, before I was living with someone and I just have less control over how early I can go to bed and stuff like that, I used to have a really rig rigorous routine. So I generally wake up at 4.30 or 5, maybe 5.30. I found 5 was typically a good time. I would do breathing exercises immediately, 15 minutes, work out for about 20 minutes to a half hour, and then meditation for 20 minutes to a half hour. And then I would make my coffee and just go straight into my, uh, my coding work or recording or whatever I had to do in that day. And uh, yeah, so that's the main thing. The core elements are the same. Uh, I do like to exercise most days of the week. I meditate. And uh, I've been doing less of the breathing exercises, but I still do them from time to time. And uh, I like to work in two to three hour blocks and take breaks. So that, that's pretty much it. Nice. Uh, like uh, one difference with me is uh, mine is like I have to go to the office. So that's quite, uh, <laughs> quite a hard task. So I have to wake up like in, at 6 a.m. prepare. Then by 7 a.m. I board the bus to the office and yeah it's a nine to five but uh yeah uh, i take it like as a way of learning so i can't complain yeah mm -hmm. yeah. yeah 
So the other question is, um, do you like listen to music when coding or you just go with the flow? Um, so that's an interesting question. So most of the time I do listen to music, but again, I do auto-regulate. If I'm in like a very sort of ADD bounce all over the place headspace, and I notice I'm noticing that I'm spending more time thinking about what the next song I'm going to play is than actually coding. What I notice for that, and then I'll either listen to nothing or I might even listen to something as corny as like the sound of a mountain stream <laughs> or something. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I will change depending on how my brain is feeling. If I'm mm -hmm. calm and focused and my mind isn't all over the place, then I will typically listen to music. And uh, I listen to practically everything. Sometimes I feel like uh, some Amon Amarth Viking metal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Or sometimes it'll be electronic music, sometimes classical, practically anything. Yeah, similarly, it's the same case with me, but most of the time I listen to like those lo-fi beats since, you yeah. know, I'm working with people around me. So there's quite like noise around me. So I have to like find a way of um, uh, preventing my brain to listen to the outside noise. So yeah, I think it works. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another question is, uh, this, this time in your live stream, you say that when setting a goal, always make sure that it, you can take 10 years to achieve that goal. If you can't take that 10 years, you'll find yourself like, uh, not a, like not giving up on the way or not achieving the goal. So I was wondering like, why did you like, is that like, where did you get that philosophy since it's, it makes sense. Like if you do something in, for 10 years, like uh, I think the world like will, <laughs> will kind of uh, like see mercy on you and give you what you want. So I'm not sure about that Yeah. Yeah, so interestingly, uh, a lot of the quote unquote wisdom I share on my channel doesn't come from me. I have a lot of great teachers, but that one actually came from me. So I, um, what it's about is dealing with doubt as an emotion. Um, so early on in about 2014, I was absorbing sort of self-help type stuff. And I was sort of told, if you really believe in, and work hard, then you can change your life in six, six months to 24 months. And I believe that very strongly. And after six months, or sorry, after 24 months, I was still working in a kitchen. So I realized at that point that um, the sort of arbitrary goals I had set for myself, um, I wasn't going to reach. And so I had doubt about my path, the path that I was walking. And years, a few years before that, I had thought to myself, I was thinking, so when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be, to be a theoretical physicist. And I was thinking to myself, well, there's, there's no way I could be like an Einstein or, or a John von Neumann or Richard Feynman or anything like that. But I thought to myself, you know, if I studied this for 10 years, I bet I could at least be okay. Um, because like, I don't, I'm definitely not a genius, but I know I'm not stupid either. And pretty much everything I've ever done in my life 
if I put time into it, I did eventually get better at it. So I realized, so moving forward again, I realized, Ryan, clearly you're not a super talented genius programmer. Um, so this six months to 24 thing, it's not going to happen. But I was looking at what other options I had working in a kitchen, working on a sales floor. And I knew that I really didn't want to do that. And I sort of made this commitment to myself. I was around 20 at the time, which was to say, well, I'm going to try and do this, even if it takes 10 years, instead of setting like this one to two year time frame. Because um, the problem with setting these short term, and I know one six months to 24 months might not sound short term to someone who's like 20 years old, but you'll get there. <laughs> um, it uh, When you don't hit this arbitrary goal, what are you going to do? Quit? <laughs> so once I realized that I wasn't going to hit this, you know, one to two year or six months to two year thing and just accepted that, Ryan, you are going to have to work your ass off and it might take you a decade. It actually psychologically felt a lot better. And here's the thing about this, making a 10 year commitment might sound really bad, especially if you're like 20 years old. I'm 28, so I'm, you know, almost out of my 20s. Here's why it was totally worth it. Because the whole time I was pursuing that goal of making a living as a programmer without a degree, I was growing as a person and helping other people and just developing my skills. So yeah, I could have stayed in a kitchen and uh, coasted and if here's the thing if someone's happy doing that then they're probably further ahead than me because <laughs> you know people like us have to keep going and going and going and that's our issues always more and more, more but um it's been completely worth it i wouldn't change a thing i wouldn't even want the success to come earlier because i needed i needed to grow up basically yeah uh I think that like elaborates that concept of being patient. I guess that's the concept of just being patient. And yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And uh, just to come back to the technical side, um, there's someone who asked about how do you approach learning a new language? Like, is there like a specific framework you follow? Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm going to sort of box this question in to, to two different things. Um, the first language I learned, which was actually a visual basic, um, I had a lot of trouble learning it. So this process did change for me after I was able to write code in my first programming language. In the beginning, before you know any programming languages, hopefully you're just someone who can learn really quickly. If not, I'm sorry to tell you, you are going to have to do a fair amount of repetition and brute force sort of coding. You're going to be writing stuff uh, and not really knowing what everything is going wrong, or sorry, what everything means in the code you're writing. You, you might, if you're starting in Java, you're probably going to be told you need to write a main function and you're not going to know what like public static void means and all that stuff. So you want to just start with, okay, how do I print something to the screen? And you want to just push through it. I wish I had a better, better, I wish I had, you know, a top tip for you. Um, and I do kind of have those for once you've 
gone over that hump. Really, just don't give up and keep practicing. And it might take you weeks or months to learn your first programming language. That's normal. Don't look mm -hmm. at that as like, I suck. You might eventually find that there's some things in programming that you're really good at. That was my experience. Learning my first language, worst of my class. Software architecture, pretty good. Once I was able to get to that point, because I didn't even know what software architecture was in the beginning. Okay, so that's column A. Column B, you already have experience with a programming language and you're learning something new. I have a progression I follow pretty much every time. Let's assume it's a GUI, uh, you're building GUI applications. Adjust it for yourself if this isn't the case. Build a hello world. Why do we do hello world? This, uh, so I should probably explain for a beginner, a hello world is like the most basic thing you can do, print something to the screen. The reason why we do that, and I don't skip this, even though I've learned quite a few languages, that's to teach you how do I actually compile and deploy something in this language, how to actually execute something. The next step, if you're doing GUI, build a calculator. Um, this will give you an opportunity to learn the fundamentals of the language, to learn how to interact with the user with, and this is the key part here, a simple problem domain. Calculator, assuming you build a simple one, you don't have to think a lot about the problem domain. So in the case of a calculator, the problem domain is mathematics. If I was building a social media application, the problem domain would be really big and complicated. So don't, don't learn a new language and build a program with a difficult problem domain in the beginning, but do build projects. This is the most important thing here. I do have like this series of projects I'll build, but follow a project-based learning approach. Um, in 2017, I had been doing Java Android for three years and uh, I wanted to learn Kotlin. It took me three weeks to be writing, to build an application in Kotlin, which doesn't sound like a lot of time. I already had a well-built Java calculator. I rebuilt that calculator in Kotlin. Uh, not using like the auto conversion Java to Kotlin tool, which has its own issues. And that was how I was able to pick up Kotlin really quickly. Um, so that's the main thing. Um, write code. Don't go through the, the documentation and write notes down and try to memorize things unless that works for you. It doesn't work at all for me. Write code, build projects, and understand that it you're in the beginning, you're going to have a lot more questions than answers about what each little thing does, but over time, you will start to become comfortable. Nice. And um, like uh, one, one side question is that um, like when I was learning Kotlin, there was at this point, you keep forgetting something. So is there a way like you can tackle that? Like, did, is there a way you tackle that or you just went to the flow and just kept going? Yeah. Uh, like forgetting language features and stuff like that. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the truth is that to this day, that's actually a big struggle that I have. I don't have a good detail for fine grained uh, syntax in particular. Like one thing, uh, I pretty much have to relearn how to do an enhanced for loop every time I write it in Java. And I've written quite a few of those. Um, to be honest, like get used to Googling 
And if you're like me, just accept that you're probably going to forget it all the time. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I have two questions remaining from people I asked on Twitter. So there's this guy called Christopher. He's asking, um, are you planning to make any videos related to data structures and algorithm using Kotlin? <laughs> yeah so in the shorter term um i need to upgrade my computer first but in the shorter term i would actually like to do some live streams where i'm just solving dsa problems on whatever website live um and i would eventually like to make some dedicated tutorials because i'm working full-time as a developer now instead of like 30 percent building my own projects 30 percent youtube 30 percent marketing and product management um, I just don't really have time to do long form tutorials. And as I'm sure you know, Breens, those long tutorials take a lot more time and preparation yeah. than the viewer really thinks they do. Yes. So short term, I would like to do some live streams and long term, I would like to teach fundamental DSA stuff. But yeah, that's pretty yeah. much it. Okay. Yeah, another question is, um, how, how do you mentally like prepare to enter a technical interview is there like um was it called like is there like a framework you follow superstition or something <laughs> yeah before you enter technical interview to psych you up and yeah you don't forget some concepts yes um i'm tempted to make a joke about some kind of superstition but no i, do, I don't have any kind of superstition uh I do have a routine and some specific things I do. So the big thing that I would share with people is I do think you should have a process. Um, and what my process is centered around is making sure that I have the, the sharpest and brightest mind set or just mental context, essentially quality of mind that I can before the interview. What I don't do is I don't do a bunch of cramming. Um, if I come to an interview and I feel like I need to cram, I have failed. Um, I haven't managed my time or I just didn't have enough time to prepare, which is fine. Um, and I'm not going to cram anyways. So um, what works for me and this might not work for you. Uh, for me, I uh, so actually funny thing before doing this talk with you. Um, I stopped eating all carbohydrates except for like some tomatoes I had last night. So I go very low carb for a couple days. Um, that might not work. Some people have a sharp mind only eating carbs, totally individual thing. Um, the morning of the interview, I'll do like a 10 to 20 minute sort of cardio like workout. Maybe I don't like to go running or jogging, but I'll do burpees or something. I'll just make sure I get my blood flowing and my heart rate up. Um, and then, uh, I'll typically meditate maybe as much as a half hour, 45 minutes, all of these things, it's just to make sure that my mind isn't going all over the place and that I'm like clear and present to what I'm doing. Cause my natural mind state is very in my head, analytical all over the place. So I want to avoid that as much as possible. And then that's basically it. And then just before the interview, this is really key. 
um, I actually let go of caring about the outcome. If I need to, I will joke with myself, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to completely fail. And I'll make the idea of failure funny. I'll make friends with it. What this does is if things start to go south, rather than like getting all anxious and oh God, I, it actually kind of puts me in a good mood. And I imagine that feeling again of like failure being funny to me. Um, and I'll even over time, you just, when you get rejected so many times, it just doesn't bug you as much. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, so yeah. those are sort of the attitudes that I try to cultivate. Yeah. And I guess like, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. You said preparation is like, if you are, if you wanted to cram something, you haven't prepared enough. And I wanted to ask like, um, for someone who hasn't done any DSA, how, how, how do you think, how, how, how long will it take for that person to be like uh, technical interview ready? Is it three months, six months, one year? Yeah. I have to ask, are we talking like Google, Meta, Facebook level or just uh, average company level? Yeah, like um, mid to small company, yeah range there okay mid to small if you're dedicated um or a quick learner a month like here's what i suggest not just for someone who wants to study this for interviews for any developer i do suggest you learn these things really quickly learn just the very basics of big o complexity why is a th three level nested loop um potentially going to have uh, n to the power of three runtime to execute and why that could be bad. Um, learn the difference between an array and a linked list. Linked list is actually pretty easy to code yourself. So those two things, those two data structures, array and linked list. And then for algorithms, doesn't matter as much because you've actually been writing algorithms your whole career. An algorithm is just another word for a function, a method. I know really technical people would say, a method isn't a function. No, I don't care. I'm talking at a higher level abstraction. They're, they're instructions given to an information processing system. That's all that algorithms are. So um, if you really want to like learn the basics of what a, a binary search is, you don't have to go crazy, but um, for data structures, array list, or sorry, array and linked list, just know what they are, what they mean, and learn the very basics of how to know when a piece of code is super inefficient, because even that can help you. That kind of thing can pop up in your day-to-day -day work. And uh, where this is coming from is I've had, most of my interviews are like mid to junior level over my career. And I did have a couple times that come up like, how would you code a linked list? That is not a difficult question if you know the very basics of it. I failed those things because at the time I had no idea. But yeah, that kind of thing, you can get that in a month, couple weeks. Okay. So it depends with what company you're being interviewed for. Very much. Okay, cool. Um, so I have one last question and then we can close this podcast for the my first podcast. So... Are there any challenges that you faced when learning 
um, DSA and what are those and can you like uh, like what what's your advice on someone who's going to learn DSA is there any loopholes is there any challenges that someone might face I had immense challenges because um, I don't really remember implementations. So this might sound bizarre to some people, but um, I could do a DSA problem. Like, let's say, what would be an example? Uh, I could write a problem where I have to do a, a merge, merge sort. Um, I can visualize in my head exactly how a merge sort works, all the steps. When it comes to memorizing how to code it, my brain does not retain that information. So my biggest difficulty is that unless it's something very simple that I've done a lot recently, I don't remember exactly how to write the algorithm. Is it, uh, you know, left is mid or mid plus one, and then right is mid, or is it mid minus one or whatever? Those fine details, especially things to do with um, indexes and sometimes like greater than and versus greater than and equals to those little things I screw up all the time. It's like I said before, I'm good at math, bad at arithmetic. The process that I had to come up with uh, to solve this is I basically will either look at or solve the problem in multiple layers of abstraction. The first layer will be an example problem. So let's say I'm sorting a list or an array of elements, I'll, I'll type out a test list. So whatever is the smallest sort of testable thing that, that makes sense for the algorithm. And then I'll, I'll write what the answer will be. And maybe if I have to, I'll write like the intermediate steps, visually speaking. I don't think I'm explaining this very well, but I'll write an example without any uh, code. It's just, I'm literally writing what the stuff code. looks like. Yeah. yeah. Well, then I go into pseudocode. I have my own little pseudocode language, which is probably a lot closer to plain uh, English language than a lot of other people's pseudocode. It's very much, it's almost sentences in bullet points. And then I will, I don't really like Python, but I'll kind of do it Python style where I will indent it to indicate sort of the flow of the program. What I found is if I can't in English pretty much write every step, my odds of writing the code is very low. So I will write the whole thing if I have to, and even break it up into like uh, subroutines or, or helper functions if I have to in uh, English. If you're curious about this more, look up, uh, what is it? Oh God, my brain sometimes. Literate programming. Donald Knuth. Okay. If you want to learn a little bit more about this, literate, L-I-T-E-R-A-T-E -E programming. Uh, I'm inspired by that. Then I will write the implementation. And then that's that's in general the process. So I'm going through multiple, a visual abstraction of the problem. And I will draw pictures if I have to, until I sort of get how things get manipulated. Oftentimes I can just do that in my head. Then I write the pseudocode and then I write the actual function. And I make sure I have tests. And that's sort of my process. Um, I hope you are not like me and you have a better memory for implementations. It's probably why it took me so long to study is I can't memorize these things very well. So I have to be really good at solving them again. 
so yeah that's basically it yeah. a lot of challenges i think that's a good process since i guess me and you are quite the same like i don't grasp that concept for a long time so like i need to write something down i don't know why is it i don't i think it's because of the education system we are taught to write things down i don't know to my effect so yeah so that's the last question and uh thank you for coming uh ran to my first episode i really appreciate and uh for the people who are watching i hope you've learned something and yeah stay tuned for the next one